Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Looking for the perfect First Communion, Confirmation, or RCIA gift? Consider a beautiful, heirloom-quality, made-in-Italy rosary from Ghirelli. A Ghirelli rosary will be prayed with and cherished forever, guaranteed. Shop Ghirelli today. That's G-H-I-R-E-L-L-I dot com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Sister Mary Veronica. Sister Mary Veronica entered the Monastery of Our Lady of the Rosary in New Jersey as a cloistered Dominican nun in 2010. She had previously graduated with a political science and German degree from American University, From there, she worked for one year as a market research analyst. Sister Mary Veronica's main activities revolve around prayer and working at the Sisters Online gift shop. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sister. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are a fairly young nun, and not too many years ago, you graduated from American University with a political science and a German degree. American University is a rigorous school. It's hard to get into and it's hard to get through. So you obviously could have used these degrees out in the world to better our society or our culture. And I think a lot of secular people would look at the transition with such a solid foundation in education for you to go out and use those and rather in choosing to enter not only religious life, but consecrated life that is contemplative and is cloistered. I think that's something that a lot of people just have a hard time wrapping their minds around. How did that choice get made that I'm not only going to enter religious life from this secular university, but I'm going to enter cloistered life? 
Well, to be honest, I was thinking actually about religious life a long time uh, before I enrolled at AU, and I thought about it throughout my time in college, uh, and I really knew that religious life in general was something I wanted to do. I had a very hard time figuring out what sort of community I wanted to enter because I was willing to do pretty much anything, but there wasn't anything that I wanted to do. And I had a hard time and was, to be honest, kind of frustrated just looking at many of the active communities I met and realizing, you know, I don't think this is it. I don't think this is it. And so while I was sort of wallowing in that disappointment, I got to know the Dominicans who were at the time responsible for the chaplaincy at American University. And in getting to meet, especially the chaplain, I decided I was jealous of the friars. <laughs> and I didn't initially know what to do about that. But I realized after a while that there were nuns and I could be one. Um, <laughs> I don't think many people have ever said that as women, they've been jealous of the friars contemplative life. Well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the contemplative life. Um, and that was, that was another interesting thing because I just noticed overall, um, that they were, they were happy and I didn't exactly, um, want to emulate all the things they were doing. I guess college chaplain is a little bit of its own lifestyle, but there was the community life, the study, which of course we go out a little bit differently that were very attractive to me. And so it, it took me a while to realize I could have some of those same things, but in kind of a different format um, if I became a nun, strictly speaking. Right. And did you encounter any of that mentality or questioning about um, what consecrated life would be taking away from your gifts or not allowing you to properly follow the dreams that maybe you had paved the way thus far? Did you, did you encounter any of that? in making it known that this was your next step? So I did. A lot of people, well, not a lot of people will say to you, oh, what a waste. Mm -hmm. um, I did encounter some of that from uh, people I had as teachers. Um, my pastor, the weekend before I entered, made an announcement in front of the whole um, parish that <laughs> I was entering. Um, and so there was a stream of people congratulating me afterwards for entering religious life. These were all people who were happy to see people pursuing religious vocations. And the one woman had, had missed um, exactly what it was that I was going to do. And she asked me and I explained that I was going to be a cloistered nun. And she looked at my mother and said, well, maybe she'll change her mind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just the idea being, I guess, even in that setting that, yes, we need people to spread the faith. Yes, we need people to teach. We need nurses. We need all these people. But to be a cloistered nun, that was just a total waste, I guess. And um, explain what that means, Cloyster. Maybe some people don't even really understand the concept. How do you encounter other people? Are you behind a grate? Are you behind a wall? Do you ever come out for any reason? How do you interact with your family and friends when they come to visit? Just explain some of those logistics of it. Well, before I go into the logistic part, I think the first thing to say about a cloister done is that a cloister nun is basically a full-time contemplative. Everything that we do is either prayer or it is practical things that are oriented towards making it possible for us to spend many hours a day in prayer. 
And one of the ways um, and means that we employ to facilitate this constant um, life of prayer, this constant seeking the face of God, is that we maintain a separation from the rest of the world about us. And that is done by, you know, withdrawing to a certain extent from contacts with other people, whether by not reading excessive news or in a physical way, by maintaining a material separation, even in our building between those who visit us and those of us who live here. So um, in our parlors where we meet people, there's a divider. It's not a grill, but there's our side and there's their side. And that is a sign of and a help towards realizing um, the interior reality of separation from the world and paying attention to God. That is really beautiful. And I think there really is a draw when you learn more about it for anybody, especially if your life just feels busy or chaotic or inundated with noise. When you hear about the Dominican monastic life, that life of contemplation, especially the silence and the freedom of spirit, all of those kind of things just really draw you in. But then I think when you dive further into that, the willingness to practice penance and praying intentionally, that intentionality that I think a lot of us struggle with because of all the noise. And then of course, the poverty, chastity and obedience, which a lot of people say is the hardest part of religious life. So once you get further into all of that, it sounds a little bit more daunting So what was it for you, the transition to cloistered life, the transition to taking on those aspects of the monastic life? What were some of the hardest things for you in transitioning away from the world? Well, I think um, people sort of imagine that the hardest thing is being separated from everybody. And of course, you miss contact with your loved ones. But you're actually not just leaving one set of people you're learning to live with another and you're entering a community. And I think for me, um, some of the hardest things were related to just integrating into a new community. The year before I entered, I worked with, well, my, my group at work was about maybe 40 people. And of those 40 people, I was totally free to decide who I wanted to eat lunch with, who I wanted to speak to and socialize with. And if there was someone who we didn't see eye to eye, we didn't get along, we just didn't have to. And then on top of that, I had friends outside of work who were obviously people I was electing to be with. And if I was tired and I didn't want to do something with them, I didn't have to. But I realized, you know, a few months after I entered the monastery, it's like, I just just want to get away from here. Not for not forever. I'm I'm basically happy I want to stay. But there were some things going on. There was some conflict. And it was like, it'd be nice to just go someplace else for the weekend and come back on Monday. Go on vacation. (laughs) When... You can't do that. (laughs) Really? There's no beach trips? (laughs) No, no, really. (laughs) So I guess that can also be hard on your family as well. As supportive as they may be, any family may be, it's hard to think that this child of mine, this sibling, this relative can no longer freely attend family gatherings or vacations or things like that. So in a way, it's a big sacrifice for the personal family as well. Was that hard on your parents? Well, I think, uh, yeah, it was. Um, and it's still something that's that's difficult for them at times. But they're also very proud of me. And they also, now that I've been here a while, they've figured out that I'm happy. And that goes a long way towards making that better. Yeah, I can. I definitely think that 
the happiness is something that surprises people when they encounter religious life. I think a lot of times they imagine that people should be miserable and um, they find that it's quite the opposite. And I think it also causes a lot of us to reflect who are not in religious life on certain aspects of our life that may be making us miserable. Like for instance, silence. I think a lot of times I'm brought back to the fact that there is just so much noise. And obviously some of that's just going to naturally come in motherhood, especially with young children. But on top of that, just like you were talking about, inundated with news and current events and your phone and social media and all of the million other things that aren't necessary, but we make necessary or a part of our lives. And even if you go to a restaurant or something like that, there's screens everywhere with news and commercials and all kinds of things to the point that it is just so hard to find silence. Yeah, it's true. And I, I mean, I would point out that even in the monastery with just the way life is, the way things being digital now, I think more than 20 years ago, it's important for nuns to kind of approach the issue of silence and discretion about what we put our mind in contact with, um, just because these things are available to us in a way that approaches almost what's available to other people. And we have to have a lot of discipline and a lot of prudence to sort out what is truly good, what is necessary, what might be good for someone else, but it's not good for me because... I've made different choices. Yeah. And I just want to state that I had the great pleasure of being um, Sister Mary Veronica's campus minister at American University, which is, is where I first met her. And so I was able to walk with her along the journey of some of her faith life and discernment during that time. And it was such a gift. It's been beautiful to see her take on this life as a cloistered Dominican and to live it out so beautifully. It's been such a witness to me and to my family. And I hope for other women, I can bring that as well to show her witness and just how she's living it out. And I think a lot of times people do look at cloistered nuns as being older, you know, and in a lot of these communities as dying. So it's so rejuvenating to see young people signing up for this, that this is still a draw to young women who are accomplished, who are intelligent, who have degrees. Christ is still calling and they're still answering. What was your faith and discernment like at a secular university and being surrounded by that secular culture? Was it compromised in any way or did you feel that it was strained? You said that you already felt the call before going into that environment. Did you feel like it wavered because of that or that wasn't much of a deterrent? So I had the benefit of really good religious education and formation before I went to college. I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I enjoyed religion class and so I paid attention in religion class and I knew a lot of things and was pretty strong in my convictions before I entered. I was somewhat unprepared for the the, the total disconnect actually between um, the things I had encountered in school, in Catholic school, and what came up at a secular university. I was not very into kind of culture war items, but I knew my faith. I knew Catholic morals. I knew what the church teaches. And that really wasn't um, a problem for me. Because when I saw something that shocked me, or that people would em- embrace um, something that I just found awful, it was never tempting intellectually. With my vocation, 
I was back and forth on, do I actually want to do this? But that was more in terms of, you know, am I willing to make the sacrifice for, for the Lord? And I, I mean, I pretty much wanted to be an own the whole time. And I'd have to say that's pretty unique because just to give us a caveat, the environment of that particular university where many, many religions are welcomed and, and no religion at all is, is welcomed equally as well. And they were pretty progressive on things such as wanting co-ed bathrooms and dorms and championing some of those efforts long before it became as common as maybe it is nowadays. I remember the pro-life groups putting out flags during the March for Life or things like that to talk about how many babies had been aborted and it kind of needed to be a covert ops in the middle of the night operation to put those flags up because it was so hostile. And the next morning, often those flags were uprooted and you know there was a lot of profanity and, and really bad reactions to that kind of thing. And as well, there was one particular shocking incident where there was a feminist art exhibit focusing on the Blessed Mother and talking about what she would be as a modern day feminist, taking these sacred images of Mary throughout history, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and some of these other images and showing them basically as a modern day feminist. And I remember just one in particular where Mary, who's often shown you know, crushing the serpent under her feet, being surrounded by angels. And in this image, she was holding up the serpent in her hand, like this victorious battle cry, almost holding up the serpent. And she was kind of trampling over the angels underfoot. And she had this very short skirt, you know, but in the background, it was still almost recognizable as Our Lady of Guadalupe, but just so incredibly warped. And I would say that that was one of the most shocking things to actually see. And I remember uh, the two of us attending that exhibit together. So it's those kind of things that, you know, you kind of rubbed up against. How did those strike you and affect your faith? Um, like I said, I had a good background in my faith and I felt pretty sure of things. And with that art exhibit and with a lot of other ideas and, and opinions that were being expressed and floated around campus, I, I also had the advantage in, in the fact that whenever these things came up, I felt to myself that I was thinking clearly, that I understood the reasons for my beliefs, and that people who were expressing the opposite were really doing it in a kind of unsophisticated, unthoughtful way. So when I saw the painting, yes, I could be outraged. It was basically blasphemous, but in a way it couldn't be threatening to me because it just struck me also as very sophomoric. And um, how can that threaten the, the truth? Right. That is really beautiful. And I think that, that in and of itself is kind of like a battle cry to not be able to touch the truth and not to feel threatened by that. I mean, my initial response was anger and being totally appalled. And to Sister Mary Veronica's great credit, I will say that you did follow up. You took action by writing a letter that is to be said and applauded, that you didn't just stand by. You actually did something about it. I don't know if there was any response to that. Was there? Uh, no, I think it just was, it was in the, um, it was in the student paper. Okay. They published your article. It was short. Um, basically just a word of protest. Right. And pointing out that it, as art, as expression, it just made no sense. 
Right. And then I want to touch on Moliere's Dignitatum because John Paul II had so much richness in that and speaking to the vocation of men and women in the world that really needed to be heard. And especially your life of prayer. Um, so much of your day is rooted in prayer. Can you kind of give us an idea of how much prayer time you guys have? What does your general day look like? So we wake up around um, 5.20 and by 5.55, we are in the chapel for morning prayer. And by morning prayer, I mean from the liturgy of the hours, the prayer of the church. We start out with the Angelus and a morning offering. And then after that, there is a period of about 50 minutes of meditation. Then comes Mass at 7.15. After Mass, we have about 10 minutes of quiet prayer and thanksgiving. And then comes another short time of community prayer. It's mid-morning prayer, the hour of terse from the Liturgy of the Hours. After that, breakfast starts for people who haven't eaten it yet. Or um, if you have, you start going about your work for the day. And that continues until noontime. We have Liturgy of the Hours, um, midday prayer again, followed by dinner. After that, there is maybe 45 minutes for recreation, for talking with one another, for doing crafts or physical activity, whatever a sister wants to do. And then at 1.30 to 3 o'clock, we have a period of silence time, which some people use for reading, some people use for a nap. It doesn't matter so long as you're quiet and you're not bothering anybody else. At 3 o'clock, we get back to the chapel for um, Office of Readings, which is one of the longer prayer times from the Liturgy of the Hours. And we have meditation again, which goes to about 4 o'clock. There's more time for um, work, meal prep, whatever you have on your schedule. 520, we all get together to say the rosary in community, and we have evening prayer, followed by supper, followed by about 45 minutes time that's dedicated to study of theology, sacred doctrine, related things like that. Um, and then we have recreation in the evening, where we all get together as a group and recreate until 8.30 when we have night prayer and start going to bed around 9. Wow. Yeah. And throughout the day... Um, at this monastery, we have the privilege of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And so we take turns praying the rosary in front of the Blessed Sacrament throughout the day. Wow. So I know a lot of people, one of their complaints is I don't have time for prayer. You know, I just can't squeeze it into my day or it's an afterthought or I do it five minutes before I'm going to pass out in bed, dead tired at the end of the day. And John Paul II said in Molieris Dignitatum that, for no human being, male or female, created in the image and likeness of God can in any way attain fulfillment apart from this image and likeness. And I think that that's so powerful for what we're talking about, because I think a lot of people do just run on their own energy for so many years, and they do always seek fulfillment apart from that relationship with God, apart from contemplating their image and likeness in the face of God. And that's obviously so at odds with how you guys live. As a result of that, many people do not find that fulfillment and they do reach these kind of points in their life where they're hitting rock bottom physically or mentally or with the use of certain other outs that they turn to. And they kind of reach these conflicts throughout their life where they're just not happy. So what would you say in light of that, 
you know, you've obviously been on both sides of the spectrum where you've been part of that political science study, and you've obviously had to keep up on the constant news and events of the world. And then now being able to be so prudent about staying away from some of those things and disconnecting from some of those things, what would your advice be to people living in the world that need for prayer and that need to contemplate our image and likeness in God? The knowledge that you've gained from these years in contemplative life that we are not able to reach fulfillment apart from that. Well, it's a little bit difficult for me to give practical advice directed towards someone else's state in life. But to just reiterate that it is so important for us to keep God in our mind to evaluate our activity in the light of, is this bringing me to God? It doesn't have to be in a way that's, you know, so so direct um, that, you know, the only things that orient us to God are sitting quietly in meditation. I mean, there's, especially in the family context, there's, you know, spending time with your family, building communion, you know, in a model of the Trinitarian communion. Um, but to realize that these blessings come to us, that we were made for God, that we were made to bring each other to God, to, to, to keep that in your mind, it is helpful to have small blocks of time that give you the opportunity to just to express your thanks to him. And, you know, if possible, to have a couple minutes to do it exclusively and to try and remember that throughout the day. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think that's why the church gives us the liturgy of the hours. And even, you know, the Angelus at noon is such a short prayer. You don't even really have to necessarily stop what you're doing. It's like a one or two minute prayer that is just such a short interruption. And I think that that is so beautiful that any state in life can kind of pick up some of those moments throughout the day, regardless of how busy or how intense the requirements are of the the job at hand. So yeah, I think that that that's just good wisdom for anybody. So I want to ask you lastly, Sister Mary Veronica, what women have inspired you most in the contemplative life? What women have inspired me the most? I don't know. So my religious name is Sister Mary Veronica. Veronica is also my baptismal name. I'm one of the minority of nuns who elected to keep my baptismal name for my religious name. And I kept that in part just because it is my baptismal name, but also because the story of St. Veronica wiping the face of Jesus, showing compassion to him, and also herself having that um, image to show off to the rest of the world was something I've always loved, even though we don't know much factually about St. Veronica. The, that story resonates with me. There's some, Okay, so St. Catherine of Siena is the big Dominican female saint that everybody knows. About. Of course. <laughs> Everyone thinks of St. Catherine of Siena. That's the first thing I thought you were going to say. Well, and I was like, I have to say, I remember one of the first things I saw about her was she has this quote, if you are what you will be, you'll set the world on fire. And although I've had a hard time um, making it through some of St. Catherine's writings, because it's just, it's, it's not my style. I, I do love that quote. Also in Dominican women, St. Catherine de Ricci is another one. Her letters are amazing because she was prioress of the monastery superior. She had quite a lot to deal with. There were all sorts of problems with constructing the building and dealing with contractors and back and forth between the provincial and the bishop and commission for different things. Always caught between a rock and a hard spot she was. And yet she was also had the stigmata and was wrapped in these ecstasies and seemed to handle everything all in stride. So she's another one that um, I guess I like. What do you like so much about St. Catherine of Siena's 
quote, if you are what you should be, you will set the world on fire. What strikes you the most about that? Um, well, God made us for himself. If you reflect your creator, how can people not respond in joy and praise to that? How can they not be inspired to do similarly? I love that. And I think that is something that anybody can be inspired by. It's such a powerful statement. I just, yeah, I love that quote. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today, Sister Mary Veronica. And can you tell us how people can find out more about the Dominican nuns? You guys have a shop that we mentioned in the beginning. Can you just tell us a little bit about how people can support the Dominican nuns of Summit, New Jersey online through your cloistered shop? We have a website, summitdominicans.org. And on that site, you'll find a link to our shop, which is hosted separately. Um, you'll also find our blog. You can find out more about um, the current events that are going on in the monastery. There's links to our Facebook page. We're just wrapping up in addition to the monastery. And there's been daily updates on what's going on there. That's basically the spot to start to find everything. SummitDominicans.org. And I guess we should have talked about how you became an expert soap maker. <laughs> Isn't that what you started out doing? I remember you did soap and chapstick, and that was probably a learning curve upon uh, entering. A little bit, yeah. So right now, I actually don't make that much soap anymore. The um, One of the first jobs you get in the monastery when you enter is learning how to make soap. And so I have graduated. I am now the soap department web mistress and shipping person, so... And we have gotten a lot of soap and hand lotion and chapstick and everything from you guys. So I will say that it is awesome. There's always new stuff coming out and it's a great way to be able to support you guys. And it's also funny to just see on the website, there's always pictures of things going on. I mean, we've seen pictures of you guys sledding, of you guys with your dog. We've seen pictures of you guys having fun making soap. And it's just really neat to have that window in with social media, just to see a little bit of the cloistered life and some of the fun things like seeing you guys sledding is just classic. You know, the, yeah. the pictures of you guys. I mean, that's People just, that. that is gold. My kids love seeing the pictures of you guys playing with your dog. It's just so normal. Wow. These nuns, they're running around throwing something to the dog and he's fetching the stick and bringing it back. And they're just laughing and having this great time. And I think that is so beautiful to project that. And one of the great gifts of social media, you know, that we can kind of just have that inside peek into cloistered life that we may be wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being with us and please go check them out on their website. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. 
Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.com slash podcast. That's mycatholichealthcare.com slash podcast.